On today's show, our guest is Scott Livingston. Scott has enjoyed a 30-plus year career as a therapist and performance coach. He's a designer of human performance solutions, has trained multiple Olympic champions, and has worked with the National Hockey League for over 11 years. Scott's a performance consultant, a performance conversationalist, a father, a son, a husband, and the owner of the Leave Your Mark podcast. His clarity around the topic of performance and getting the best out of yourself is fantastic. And when you couple that with his entrepreneurial spirit, we're all set for an amazing interview. I know that you're going to learn something from the trainer and the coach of Olympic champions. So please help me in welcoming Scott Livingston. Hey, are you totally committed? Are you playing full out? Are you all in? Hi, my name is Robert Brass and this is the Go All In Podcast. Join me as we explore amazing stories of success, heartache and absolute triumph by those who have gone all in. I'm glad you're here, so let's get to it and do whatever it takes to go all in and create the life of your dreams. Well, welcome to the show, Scott. It's great to have you here, mate. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure and an honor to be with you. No problems. Well, I'd like to start all of our shows with a little quiz that helps us calm the nerves down. It warms us up a little bit and helps us get to know you a little bit more. And I like to ask Canadians these curly kind of questions too. Is that okay? Sure. (laughs) All right, here we go. I just need you to give me the first thing that comes to mind. Do you prefer the ocean or the snow? Ocean. Oh, really? Do you come Mm -hmm. from a place where it's snowing all the time? I live in a place that snows all the time, but I prefer the ocean. <laughs> I start, I start Maybe one day with, I'll get an ocean place. <laughs> <laughs> I start off with Canadians asking that question because you don't have to shovel the sunshine down here in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I'm jealous of you, basically. <laughs> all right, these are random questions in no particular order. Do you prefer to train for events or help somebody with rehab? Help somebody with rehab. Do you prefer to coach teams or individuals? That's a hard answer, actually. I would say um, now in my life, probably individuals. I've done a lot of team stuff, but I like working one-on-one and solving problems that people have. Fantastic. Do you prefer teaching students or coaching athletes? I would say teaching students, probably, at the end of the day. Fantastic. Do you play an instrument? No, I did a long time ago. played the trumpet when I was a boy, but not anymore. <laughs> but no more trumpet going around the house anymore, annoying everybody. <laughs> well, there's actually a story that goes with that. I wanted to play the saxophone. My father said, uh, I told him that I was going to play the clarinet because I couldn't remember what it was called. I told my father I wanted to play the clarinet. He thought I meant the coronet. So he bought me a trumpet and that's what I ended up playing. <laughs> <laughs> Can you sing? Uh, no. <laughs> well, I can, but probably you wouldn't want to listen to it. So, <laughs> I say I sing really well in the car when there's nobody around. Yeah, exactly. In the shower. I'm a good yeah. singer. All right, last one. Do you prefer meditation or contemplation? Contemplation. Very good. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, mate. It's good to get to know you a little bit like that as well. Well, people come on over to this podcast to learn more about others that have gone all in. So if you could, mate, could you please share with us your biggest all in story or stories and share with us what you've learned from your decisions and your commitment to success? Well, it's funny when you asked me that question uh, coming in and preparing that it was, you know, I probably could have picked 30 different things. But one of the things that came to my mind was in 1998, I had been working at a university for a long time as a strength coach therapist. And I got a phone call from a friend of mine who worked in the National Hockey League, which is 
sort of like the Australian Rules Football League, the same sort of professional league here in Canada. And my friend told me that there was a job opportunity. And I live in Montreal in Canada. And there was a job opportunity with a team called the New York Islanders in New York. And they needed a strength coach. And I had gotten home from a conference, listened to the message. It was old, old message machine in the day and said, yeah, okay. So I phoned up and I took this number down and called the guys and talked to them. And they said, listen, we want to interview you tomorrow. So I jumped in a plane, landed in Long Island and uh, was picked up by a limo in my life, taken to the arena, walked into the arena. There was nobody in the arena. I couldn't even find who I was talking to. I came in, finally found who I needed to speak to. Had three interviews that day. At the end of the day, they offered me a job and they said, we'd like to hire you as the strength coach. When can you be ready? And I said, well, probably in a couple of weeks from now, I could probably work my calendar. He said, we need you on Monday. Can you do that? And I said, okay. So I flew back to Montreal, packed my bags, flew back to New York on the Monday, worked camp for two weeks. Consequently, you know, they liked me, kept me, offered me a full-time position. And I completely turned my life around and moved to New York had really no credit, no no idea. Like when you move to the United States from Canada, they think you're from Mars. So trying to get a buy a house and do all those things. And I was living with a gal at the time um, after my first marriage and said I would never get married again. And, and so I ended up having to ask her to marry me, get married before I went down to New York so that she could live down there. Um, took a job down there. Uh, went to my first training camp, which was supposed to be seven days in a place called Lake Placid, which hosted the Olympics uh, back in 1980. I think it was when the Americans beat the Russians in hockey. So I went to Lake Placid for what was supposed to be a seven-day camp. And right in the middle of it, the owner of the New York Islanders, because there were a bit of chaos, decided he was going to break the contract with the arena. And we got told that we had to fly back to New York, move all the stuff out of the arena, basically go back up to Lake Placid and spend 21 days in Lake Placid doing a training camp that was supposed to be seven. And then the whole time they told us that we might play every game on the road that season. So uh, that was my introduction to the National Hockey League was a bit of a gong show. And at the meantime, I tried to buy a house, find a house. There's a lot of stories to that. So I went all in, basically went there, moved my life there, made it happen and uh, jumped into the world of uh, professional hockey. So that's my all in story for you. That's fantastic. Stories of immigration are always one of complete and total chaos. I think it's rarely a smooth <laughs> process. And you say to an Aussie bloke, oh, I moved from Canada to the United States. You go, so what? You know, like are you driving down yeah. the road? Sort of thing. <laughs> but I hear you loud and clear. They think you're from Mars. It's a completely different thing. Did you have children at the time when you were doing that? No, I didn't. So uh, that was a, a lucky part of, of that reality. And uh, it's funny, but you, you know, you're, there's great truth in what you said. You know, you're just driving six hours down the road to New York, but it is almost like you're from another universe. The Americans probably think Canadians are pretty much the same as Australians. They know nothing about us and nothing about our world. And I was 35 at the time. And yet, you know, to try and get credit to buy a home was, like I said, it was like being from Mars, you know, so it was quite a bizarre period of time in my life. And what about the chaos of it? Because it, when you have a go at something and you decide to commit to something, it, you always have these great ideals and you're starry-eyed and you're excited by it all happening. And then when it sort of it sounded like it came undone, it seems a little bit, and you sort of, you're completely committed to it, so you had to stick with it. You know, it would have been the easiest thing in the world to pack up and go home, but you stuck with it. When did you realize that that was going to pay off for you and actually being committed and staying all in and moving forward, when did you realize that was going to work for you? Well, it's interesting you ask that, Robert, because I would say the next three years of my life were pretty chaotic in general. I went down and worked for the Islanders, but the team was in complete disarray. They didn't have a lot of money. Their ownership was a mess. And so as the year went on, uh, one of the guys on the team, uh, the training 
staff kind of singing a song and saying this was a circus and we kept talking about it as the circus and and I was struggling with trying to sort of get my life set up there and as the year went on I, I talked to a friend of mine who was the therapist for the New York Rangers which was almost the exact opposite of the Islanders they were the richest team in the league they had a lot of money they were right in Manhattan trained out of Madison Square Garden the famous arena and he told me that they were going to potentially hire a new guy so I actually quit my job one week before training camp the next year, took a job with the Rangers. So that was chaotic. Went to their training camp. Literally a week later, I was on a different team. My wife and I had bought a house in Long Island, now had to sell our house and figure out how we were going to move to possibly Connecticut because the where the Rangers practiced, the average house price in Rye, New York was $1.5 million a home. So I wasn't buying one on my strength coach's salary. So I moved to Connecticut and I would drive almost two hours a day to go to, to work. And I figured out at one point after two years of working for that team, that I spent 26 days a year in my car. Yeah. So uh, it was quite the grind working for the organization. Lots of interesting things that happened to me over that time, uh, lots of different struggles. And in fact, uh, I started to struggle in my marriage with my wife, who was sort of dealing with, you know, not being able to work down there because she didn't have a visa and, Eventually ended up leaving my wife in a crazy uh, moment. Uh, I had a, a tryst with another lady, kind of the only time in my life I've ever done that. It was, the relationship wasn't working out. And I basically one day went home, took three duffel bags out of my closet, threw all my clothes in the bag, threw them in the car and told my wife I was leaving her and drove out the driveway and never basically saw my wife again until I went to court with her. We had our divorce. I then consequently lost my job with the Rangers, which I'd been in for two years because the GM had changed midway through the two years. So going all in, uh, you know, it's kind of like you just have faith that you're going to come out at the other end of the wash, maybe be a better person. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it all worked out because that following summer, I was alone. I didn't know what I was going to do. I spent the summer in New York. I'd lost my job. I'd lost my marriage. And this job with the Montreal Canadiens, which was my sort of hometown in essence, came up and I took the job and I went back home to Montreal. And that's where I found my wife now and had my little daughter. And so I always look at, you know, these failures as more like opportunities for a change and, and maybe something else that's going to happen positive in your life. So that was a crazy period of time. When you came back to Canada, was it like calm and normal? <laughs> Yeah, it was a lot better. And I had made some choices to make it calm. I, I came back and I said, you know what, I'm buying myself a loft. You know, I was single, making a pretty good salary. I paid off my ex-wife in one shot and uh, basically came back. Didn't have a lot of money to my name, but I was making a good salary. So I said, I'm going to live a good life and be a single guy. I bought myself a nice loft apartment down in what's called the Old Port of Montreal, which is a beautiful place. Gosh. It was five minutes from the, the arena that the team played in. So now I didn't have the two-hour commute. I had a five-minute commute. I would literally get up in my pajamas, drive my car to my from my <laughs> heated garage to my heated garage, work the day, and then go back. So yes, it was a lot calmer and a lot easier. It was different. It must have been a, a real relief for you even though it was chaotic in the US when you were doing that, you must have got some really invaluable experience working with professional teams like that. Was that good? Yeah, it was. There's always a yin and yang to these things. The experience working with 
professional athletes because I had worked with college athletes at that point. I had to raise my game. I had to learn to be a stronger leader. I had to learn to have confidence in my decision-making. I had to be able to manage dealing with people who, uh, at that level, you're dealing with coaches who have certain fundamental beliefs, uh, maybe sort of things that are not necessarily right or wrong, but they're entrenched. There's a lot of you know tradition in sport, uh, especially a sport like hockey. And I'm sure it's like that in rugby or Australian rules football, where there's these traditions. And so sometimes the logic of why somebody does something isn't necessarily ne- uh, linked with the, you know, the sensibility of it. So you were always dealing with these things, the science of what you do in sports science versus what is really done in the sport. So I learned a lot about sport, how to work with people, how to work in those kinds of conditions. I learned about managing the grind. I mean, it's uh, you work in the National Hockey League or any professional sport league. It's not like the rosy television uh, show that you watch, just like anything in entertainment. They're 80, 100-hour work weeks. You know, I used to say I had probably five days off a year, and those days you didn't even know you were having. The only days off during a, a season that I knew I had off were Christmas and Boxing Day. And everything else was basically a crapshoot. You never knew until the game was over whether the next day you were going to be going in or not. So a lot of learning of, of what it takes to be winners and to be the best at what you do. And so it was, it, was, it was a cool experience. Fantastic. Were you privy to the inside of the business and the business model or was it just all about the next game and the next week? I wouldn't say that I was deep within that, but I learned certainly over time the construct of what was going on from a business perspective. I mean, it certainly is, a, you know, Sport is a business, how it operates is a business. So there's a lot of business decision-making, sometimes not the most sensible business decision-making uh, like any business. one would, 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 would want to see. But yeah, I learned a lot about the business of sport. And unfortunately, yeah, learned a lot about it because, you know, the guys get to that level and there's a certain impassioned love of the sport, which gets unfortunately tainted by the money, probably more in the last 20 years than we're, the reality 20 years before that where guys still sort of played because of the love of the game. Now people play, you know, for the money, the contract. And so you deal with that a lot. Mm -hmm. When you're coaching at an elite level and you've got a group of guys there that you're training, how do you know what to prescribe to somebody? I mean, is a group of people there and you know what works at that level. How do you look at each individual person and go, you need to do X and you need to do Y and you need to do A, B or C. I mean, gosh, there's so many variables in there. And when you're dealing with a team of guys, what, probably 20, 25 people in a team like that, that must take a massive amount of headspace. How do you work through that process? Well, there's the team elements of it and there's the individual elements of it. I think the in any team dynamic, you have to understand the realities of what everybody has to do in order for the team to move in a certain direction and have success. And so for a team to have, truly have success there are compromises of the individual net gains or benefits. And, and the teams that win, I think it's when the athletes in that room understand what they have to compromise in their own demands in order for the team to be successful. And when they don't win, the team hasn't cultivated that. But in that, as an individual in my role, you have to look at each athlete as an individual and recognize where their strengths are and their weaknesses are, especially the weaknesses that can cost them on the field of play so whether that's recognizing that they they have a you know an imbalance or an instability or an issue that could cause them to be injured and therefore they're not playing and when they're not playing they're not contributing you need to be able to find that and fix that 
You need to find out if, if they have to play a certain role and they don't have this attribute and they need that attribute to play that role. You need to find that attribute or come to terms with the fact that they don't have it and find somebody else to play that role. So that re- requires good interaction with the coaching team, et cetera, to make sure that you're looking at what guys can and can't do, what they need to do. You won't always work on all the weaknesses because in fact, a lot of times you say, okay, what's the strength of the athlete and put them in the role. And I think that's when you marry good coaching with good support around athletes Mm -hmm. is that the coaches recognize that this guy has this strength and these strengths and these weaknesses, and I'm going to play to his strengths rather than trying to figure out how you're going to make every guy, you know, have all the same attributes. So that's the coach's job. But my job as the strength and conditioning practitioner or therapist is to say, you know, if, if he's been chosen to play X and he needs these things and I can get them by doing something that I do in the gym to help him, I need to do that. And so I need to know how to figure that out and then figure out how I'm going to take him to that place. Fantastic. I'm wondering how those skills translate across to other aspects of your personal life. I mean, you, you seem really, really skillful at seeing what somebody else needs in terms of their strength and conditioning and making them a better athlete, a better person, all those sorts of things. That must have translated and helped you a lot in the times of chaos in the US there for those couple of years that it worked. Yeah, I mean, I think I have lots of personal weaknesses like everybody does. I think one of my strengths is being able to actually see problems and find solutions in interesting strategic ways and to work with people to find those. That's something that's always been a skill set of mine along with you asked me before if I like teaching versus coaching and I'm a, I'm a teacher mentor at heart. So, you know, my focus has always been as a, as a coach is to teach people why they're doing things and help them see what they need to see in order to make that adjustment or make that move in the right direction. So in the same way in my life as a business partner or as a, a partner to my wife or what have you, or, or a father to my child, I think my role has always been sort of as a mentor, as a guide, as a, somebody who sees things that maybe they don't see for themselves and help them see it with a language that's trustworthy and honest enough that they feel that I have their best interest at heart versus that I'm doing it for my own measure of success or my own ego. And how does, does it trend? Does it rub off on your kids? <laughs> Not yet. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I have one girl, she's nine years old and uh, she's a work in progress, beautiful little person. But uh, I don't think we really realize what it is, we, the impact we have on them until uh, way later in life when they tell us. But for now, I think I'm doing a pretty good job. We'll to see. <laughs> I, don't, I, think every, I think every parent, irrespective of what job that they have, they rub off in, in some ways and some more than others because you know, it depends how much you're around your kids, of course, but I'm an ex-infantry guy and everything needs to be done quickly. Everything's done with a sense of urgency. And I can see my daughter, sometimes she can get dressed in like probably 12 seconds flat, shoes on, laced up the whole nine yards. We're almost out the door. And I said, and she's like, dad, you, you know, this is not the infantry. We don't have to do this anymore. And then I always say to her, look, every now and then, darling, when you get a little bit older, that's going to play in your favor. You'll see. And, and I know you're going to be 25 years old and living with a boyfriend or something like that, dressed in like 20 seconds. And the guy's waiting for like, you know, where are you? Come on, what's going on? These girls normally take 25 minutes. You take 25 seconds. <laughs> uh, good fun. Good fun. All right. So I just want to come back to New York and to America and not to harp on it, but I just wanted to know what were the top three things that it was a long time ago. I get it. But what are the top three things that you remember that kept you committed to success and kept you moving forward and 
despite the challenges that you're facing with the commute, the job, the insecurity, the money, your misses, all of those things. Can you remember what the three things that you, you worked on that kept you going? Yeah, I think that they're in some way they're the same things that keep me doing whatever project I do as well as I personally can. One is a pride in, in craftsmanship. I like to do good work when I do my work. And sometimes that's a drawback. Sometimes it's a negative because I'm a bit of a perfectionist in that way. But I wanted to do a good job and I wanted to prove that I belonged where I was. I think the second one was that failure in terms of not making it work out was never an option for me. I, you know, I, I had sort of, in a sense, reached a dream place. You know, when I was a little boy, I wanted to play hockey in the National Hockey League. I think it's every little Canadian boy's uh, goal yeah. in some ways. And, and so this was kind of like the best, the second best, you know, I was working in the National Hockey League. And so to lose that job or to, for it not to work out was just not going to happen. I was, I was going to make it work out. And then I guess the last thing would be that I'm honorable. I think I wanted to uh, make sure that I uh, delivered what I said I was going to deliver and honor the the contract in essence that I had, had signed and said I would do. And and so that's kind of the way I measure myself as uh, good craftsmanship and honorability in the work that I do. So those two things, no matter what I'm how much dirt I'm under, I will sort of force my way through it in a sense because of those things. It's a really wonderful way to describe commitment. And that's a breakdown of commitment. And it doesn't matter if you've got a job, you've got a relationship, your finances, anything like that. That's a really wonderful way to describe that. So thank you for sharing that with us. Tell me about some of the Olympic athletes that you've coached and some of the success that you've achieved there. I'm really interested to hear about that. Well, I've been very blessed and honored in my career. I finished when I was with the Canadians. I guess there's a cachet when you're working with a professional sports team that, you know, people think, you know, uh, everything that you need to know. And I was lucky enough to be relatively good at what I did. So I started getting asked by people to train. I actually got involved with a friend of mine built a foundation called B210, which was basically a privately funded organization. Very, very unusual in the world of sport. My friend was able to get uh, 13, 14 wealthy Canadians to put money in a pot going into the 2010 Olympics, which we were hosting the Winter Olympics in Vancouver. And they put money in to basically support the athletes that we hand-selected. And they, most of these athletes were athletes that really had a chance to podium or be successful. But essentially, the Canadian context, and I think the Australian context is not all that much different in terms of sport, is that you know we tend to be very socialistic in the way we approach things. And so I used to draw an analogy that if there was 45 of us in a room that wanted to climb Mount Everest, Canada would make sure that everybody had one oxygen tank, one Sherpa, and one bag of food. And so nobody would climb the mountain because nobody would have enough material goods to get them to the top. Whereas what we did as an organization was said, you, you know, you have a chance, Robert, of, of winning an Olympic medal. You're going to get three Sherpas, three oxygen tanks, and all the food you need. And then we'll see if you get there. And then if you fail, it's because, you know, at the end of the day, there was somebody better than you. And, but you didn't fail because you didn't have all the, the material you need to, to make that happen. And so uh, I got involved in that organization in the early 2000s, and I was able to work with uh, a series of uh, really special athletes, the first of which was a freestyle skier, the mogul skiing, a gal, gal named Jen Heil, who we basically re rebuilt from scratch, and she went and won a gold medal in Torino, and then that sort of broadened the horizon of the program and then worked with a few bobsledders and then some more freestyle skiers and 
so now, you know, I've gotten to a point where I've probably trained, I would say, I don't even know, count probably eight or nine gold medalists, uh, wow. a host of silver, a bunch of bronze medalists. I had this past Olympics, I had three athletes at one gold, uh, two. I don't know if you've paid attention to the Winter Olympics, but there's an ice dancing team called Scott Moyer and Tessa Virtue who are pretty well known in the world now in ice dancing. They've probably been the best ice dancers for the last 10 to 12 years. They've won now a gold in Vancouver, silver in uh, Sochi, and then they won a gold again this year. And I, I was part of their comeback attempt and then uh, freestyle skier won gold medal. So I've, I've been able to work with some really special people, really special athletes who have amazing attributes and amazing character sets. And it's taught me a lot about what it takes to win and what happens when you lose sometimes, even when you do all the right things. So. Did you have to ever have to pinch yourself and say, hey, I'm working with these guys going to the Olympics? That's pretty cool. Yeah, it, it is cool. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes contextually you get in the middle of it and uh, you don't really recognize what it is you're doing until you come sort of out of it. And then you look back and when you're with people who don't get to do that, it's the same thing as when you're in professional game, you're, you know, and you were in the military, you know, you're in the military and you see things in a certain way and then you come out and you're not really sure why people don't see it the same way you do, but it's, it, it, you know, it's a contextual reality you live in. So it becomes the normative to you, but yeah, I mean, when I really look back with a point of reference on my life, I've been very blessed and been able to work with some very special athletes. It all came about because you uh, went all in when you went to New York. It never would, the road never would have led you there, right? That's right. Yeah, I think, you know, your show is very poignant in the sense that, you know, there are going to be moments in your life where you have to, uh, you either jump in the pool or you don't. And if you don't, there's a fallout for that. And you'll never know what could have been had you not jumped in that water. I think ultimately we don't want to be stupid and jump in the water if we don't know how to swim. But I think if you've got some inkling of how to swim, then get in the water and figure it out and, and get to the other side of the, of the lake that you're trying to swim. We don't really have lakes here. When you jump in the water, you got to watch out for the sharks out the front here where I am. There's a lot of sharks here. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going all in. Uh... <laughs> I've been all in on my paddleboard out the front here in Canola. The world of surfing, you're going on all in every day, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Look, look, it's, it's funny. There's uh, When I'm out the front here on my, um, my stand-up paddleboard, paddle surfers don't really like guys with stand-up paddleboards. And I can remember coming back around, I thought, I'll, I'll, around the corner here, I'll catch a wave or two before I get back to the beach. And, and I looked and there was a bunch of surfers there. And I thought, oh, no, no, don't, don't worry about that. So I kind of caught the edge of a wave. And as I was paddling in, I looked down on the starboard side of my paddle board and I put my paddle in the board in, in the water. And as I did that, it's like a 14 foot hammerhead. It was as big as my board. My board's 14 feet long. As I went to put my paddle in the water, I think I just kind of touched him on the tail as I did that. And I, and I said to myself, go get him, go get him. And then <laughs> ushering him towards the surfers. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my wife I've, actually I've showed me a video. In, so I've jumped into businesses and to, ideas and things like that and there literally has been sharks in the water and you, and you do get bitten but i've never regretted when things have gone wrong i've always wished i'd made better decisions but i've never regretted having a go at something so that's really cool i mean there's been a lot of controversy around performance enhancing drugs with the russians and the russians being banned and things like that can you offer a comment on that yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate because it always puts a taint on um, the good athletes that do things and quietly go about their business doing things, you know, without being drugged. I actually 
believe, and I might be naive to this, but you know, in all my career, I've never actually encountered somebody who has used drugs that I really knew that they were, I mean, I've known a few that have used them, but it's been fewer than farther between. And I actually am a little bit of a believer that there's less drug use in that level of sport than really contextually people believe there is. I think what happens is that there's some bad eggs that get into it. And then the perception becomes that this is, you know, a whole reality for a whole host of athletes and that nobody can be successful unless they use these drugs. And I think there are certain sports, unfortunately, especially the ones that are very much from point A to point B, where you're talking about shaving hundreds of seconds off of things or, you know, launching a ball. You know, most of the what I would call the track sports are the the true foundation sports of, of the Olympics. It becomes very tough to carve those times off without doing something that's spectacularly different. But I think for the most part, those are lesser elements of sport than a lot of other sport sports that are in the Olympics now. And so I don't think that it's absolutely necessary to use drugs to be able to succeed at the Olympics. I actually believe fundamentally that if you train well and train with good recovery techniques, good nutritional techniques, I think drugs end up being a shortcut to success. And a lot of athletes get convinced the ones that do get into that troublesome environment, I think get convinced that that's what they have to do in order to be successful. And I don't really think that's the truth. I think that there is probably a small percentage of the ones that don't have necessarily the truthful attributes to be able to succeed, that if they use those, that might lift them up over the precipice. But I think if you've got a certain level of talent and capacity, if you train really well with you know good technique and you stay healthy, you can have great success. That's just something I fundamentally believe, and I've seen it myself in sports. So I think it gets too pumped up, unfortunately, by the media, and we see the bad stories, and then that becomes the label on on the Olympics, which is unfortunate. I was going to say it's uh, probably more of a media beat up that it actually is happening inside that space. And, and you know, you point out that you've spent a long time in training those people, and you never really encountered it or saw it. I've been in my life, I've been surrounded by some incredible athletes as well, and none of them. None of them have taken performance-enhancing drugs. They just train harder than everybody else. They're smarter, and they have natural talent and natural ability, and that's that's just the reality of it. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're out there in the media telling a story about really good, strong, natural athletes and everybody else is out there doing the same thing, it's not really going to get anybody's attention. It's not going to get a click, a like, or a share, or a follow. So yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your podcast. My podcast is called Leave Your Mark, and it's really generated out of a, a desire to learn about people, what's influenced people, and left a mark on them and helped create the person that they are and what they're doing to leave a mark on others or on the world at large. So I'm really interested in understanding how people uh, are defined in their lives and what, what influences them to become the people that they are and the characters that they are so uh, I'm enjoying it a great deal. I've uh, had some amazing conversations and I look forward to having more and more amazing conversations. I think what it's really given me is the the way to connect with people in a deep way. And that's something that I really enjoy and always have enjoyed. So it's an outlet for me as a part of my character. 
I was going to say, is it, is it an outlet for you? And obviously it is. I know when I started this podcast, I've, I think I mentioned this to a couple of my guests. I've, I'm always talking to people that have really got great opinions and great stories and they always want to get it off the chest and share it with somebody. And it feels great to be able to share my opinions and my stories and other people's stories as well, more importantly than, than mine and be able to facilitate that. How many episodes have you got and, and what's it called and where can we find you? It's called Leave Your Mark. It's on iTunes. I have 11 in the bank. I have another one that I did today, so 12. And my goal is to have uh, 50 in the bank by uh, mid-year. And uh, I don't see any reason why I won't get there. And speaking to guys like you and other people and uh, learning more and more, it's uh, it's been a fantastic experience. So like, I, I just look forward to every day that I do it. So it's fun. Excellent. Well, you're obviously a really busy guy. Can you share with us some of the daily routines and the little life hacks that you that you have that help you bring your A game each day? Well, I've done a lot of personal work in the last few years on myself uh, and made some big life decisions. And one of the things that I've gotten better at doing is really crafting my life more than just kind of seeing where it comes and, and dealing with it, so to speak. And <laughs> so now what I do every day is I finish my day, I count my wins, uh, what I was able to uh, make happen that day in life. And that links to what are my intentions. So I set up my intentions for the next day. And then I wake up in the morning and I journal basically on how I'm sort of feeling as the day opens up, uh, review my intentions and revise them and then sort of set a path for the day ahead and my intentions are, and my wins are connected to essentially a personal avatar. So I have who I want to be as a person or who I believe I am and I want to express as a person. So my current one is called Scotty 6.0, which I'm 55, going to be 55 this year. So working towards my 60th birthday and sort of I see me. So I have uh, three characters. My One is uh, my soul, which is called Music Man. My physical, which is called magnetic, and my um, brain, which I call the oracle. So I uh, often do those things, I have little sayings that I think about. And so everything I do from an intentions-based perspective links to one of those three categories in my life, so to speak, what I'm doing that day. And so then I look at the end of the day and see what I was able to achieve in those things and whether I completed some things and then revise and do it again the next day. And so it keeps me the wins make me uh, sort of reveal to myself the accomplishment of the day, which is a very positive endpoint for the day. Allows me to go to sleep on a positive and wake up on a positive. That then allows me to sort of know what I'm focused on versus sort of pissing away my time during the day on a whole bunch of busyness. I try to focus it on on things that I I know are contributing to where I want to go as a person. So that's my big life hack now for where I go. That's fantastic and there's a little bit of humor injected in there as well which i really like kind of makes it fun yeah exactly make fun of myself from time to time (laughs) i also like to have goals as well it sounds very goal orientated but without having to be goal orientated just looking at where you want to go where you are and take it stock of what's happening when you're doing it so that's really fantastic thank you for sharing that with us well scott thank you so much for coming on the show really appreciate you sharing your insight there particularly to human performance and Kudos to you, mate, and what a wonderful career you've had with those Olympic athletes and those sports teams. And that was a, an amazing all-in story. It's one of hustle and grind, and I love to hear those ones because I feel like I've done that, and, it's, and you and me are not by ourselves in that hustle and grind of life. So you can stick with it and come out on the other side. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Thank you. Well, I appreciate what you're doing, Robert. Good luck with your show. You're doing some fantastic work, and I, I wish you the best with your success in your show, and thanks for having me on. 
no problems. Well, I'll make sure the in the show notes we'll include the link to your podcast. So thanks very much, Scott. We'll see you again soon, mate. Bye for now. Thank you, sir. Take care. Goodbye.